I took it several occasions, um, uh, on social occasions, more than 20 years ago when I was working as a journalist. It was a mistake, and it was a mistake that I deeply regret. Mm. It was a crime, it was a mistake. I deeply regret it. I've seen the damage that drugs do. Um, I've seen it close up, and I've also seen it in the work that I've done as a politician. Mm. And that's why I deeply regret uh, the mistake that I made. One of the things that I would absolutely say is that it is a mistake which I profoundly regret, mm. absolutely. The mistake that I made is not a mistake I would want anyone else to make. Dad does... Dad does... Drugs... Drugs... Dad does drugs... Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Dad Does Drugs, uh, recorded in a different room with a different microphone. I'm wearing a headset like Madonna did in the 90s. Oh, what a day to be alive and what a week to be publishing a podcast episode featuring an interview with a politician about drug law reform. It's June 2019 and 11... Conservative Party MPs are in the running to be the next Prime Minister of the UK, and I make it eight have revealed, or been outed in the last week or so, to have used illegal drugs in their lives. Let's do a little roll call. It's Andrea Leadsom, Leader of the House of Commons. Everyone's entitled to a private life before becoming an MP. I smoked weed at university and have never smoked it since. Jeremy Hunt went backpacking and had a bang lassie. It's legal in many parts of India. But not in the UK. Rory Stewart said sorry last week because he smoked opium at a wedding in Iran 15 years ago. It was something that was very wrong. I made a stupid mistake. Dominic Rabb, former Brexit secretary, smoked cannabis at university. I've never taken cocaine or any Class A drugs. I think Class A drugs are a bit different. Esther McVeigh, former work and pension secretary, even more former GMTV presenter, smoked cannabis too. So did Matt Hancock, the health secretary. Now, the big guns, Boris Johnson. He told GQ magazine he'd tried cocaine and cannabis when he was a student at university in Oxford. He later revised the story during an appearance on Have I Got News For You? I think I was once given cocaine, but I sneezed, so it didn't go up my nose. Michael Gove, the big one. Environment Secretary confessed to taking cocaine while working as a journalist on several occasions at social events more than 20 years ago. It was a mistake. I look back and I think I wish I hadn't done that. The non-drug taking contenders are Mark Harper, no, me neither. Former chief whip. He's not taken any drugs or illegal substances. Sam Guillama. I've never taken drugs. I doesn't think there should be different rules for privileged elites. Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary. Anyone who takes Class A drugs needs to think about the supply chain and the lives destroyed along the way. And that's it. That's our 11. 
So, lots of headlines in papers, interviews on the telly and radio, and just loads of hypocrisy and ridiculousness. Michael Gove having to defend a drug policy that, when I heard him doing it on The Andrew Marr Show, just sounded ludicrous. One of the things that I also completely agree with is that the drug trade is wrong, that drugs wreck lives, and that's one of the reasons why I have sought in office to try to, uh, to help people to move away from that. See? Those drugs didn't wreck your life, Michael. They don't wreck 90% of users' lives. Reform the laws and support the 10% who need help. Don't arrest them. Now, let's talk to an MP with some common sense regarding drugs. And yes, he does reveal his own drug-taking past. But, spoiler alert, it's not very exciting or scandalous. But he is lovely. It's Norman Lamb, MP. I think if you were an alien and you had um, landed in Britain and taken a snapshot of UK politics in the yeah. second week of yeah. uh, December, then you wouldn't have thought there was much else going on other than Brexit. No. We've now had three days of debate on the withdrawal agreement. I must order the Honourable Gentleman to withdraw immediately from the House for the remainder of this day's sitting. Does this House want to deliver Brexit? <laughs> we will therefore defer the vote schedule for tomorrow and not proceed to divide the House at this time. I'm about to table a motion which says the following, that this House has no confidence in the Prime Minister. The Parliamentary Party does have confidence. This has been a long and challenging day, but at the end of it, I'm pleased to have received the backing of my colleagues in tonight's ballot. But here we are, I'm in the office of Norman Lamb MP, MP for North Norfolk, uh, Liberal Democrat, and you uh, put forward this week a 10-minute rule bill, I did, into the House of Commons, uh, proposing the legalisation of cannabis. Order. 10-minute rule motion, Norman Lamb. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I I beg to move that leave be given to bring in a bill uh, to legalise the possession and consumption of cannabis to provide for the regulation of the production, distribution and sale of cannabis and for connected purposes. I felt people needed some sort of respite from Brexit. <laughs> um, not being a, um, a political expert, do you want to just briefly explain a 10-minute rule bill and what yeah. sort of stage of the process of making a law that is? So 10-minute rule bills are not really a mechanism to end up with a law uh, on the statute book, as it were, but it's a way of raising issues for debate and to get them into the public domain. So uh, I want uh, we, we were given the opportunity of a slot to present a, a bill to Parliament, and I wanted to make the case for uh, a legalised, regulated market for cannabis, both to address the uh, recreational use of cannabis but also medicinal use and and I think the timing is important because it comes after the government's reforms for medicinal use which have fallen massively short of expectations because I think uh, it raised the hope for many people uh, who use cannabis for uh, you know um, pain relief uh, for conditions like epilepsy, for Parkinson's uh, and so on, multiple sclerosis is another example. 
that they would now be able to get a prescription of some cannabis-based product. They're, they're going to their GPs across the country and being told routinely, uh, we won't refer you to a specialist because there's no evidence of effectiveness. Meanwhile, a lot of these people are currently being prescribed opiates, including fentanyl, which is massively dangerous, highly addictive and potentially fatal. So it's the most extraordinary situation that we face where we have uh, a very dangerous product prescribed and people can't get access legally to cannabis. And of course, the uh, uh, the result of that is that people who need cannabis for pain relief are having to buy it illegal, on the illegal market, the criminal market, and risk uh, prosecution uh, and conviction for, for doing that. Uh, quite apart from the fact that it's ludicrous that we continue to give criminal records to tens of thousands of young people in particular for use of cannabis for recreational purposes. Now, the bill got defeated. Yep. Uh, fif- uh, 66 votes to 52. Yep. There are 660 MPs, so... Is where, that, where, where were they all, exactly? Is that usual for such a low turnout? Uh, well, so normally, it's, this is quite interesting, because normally uh, there isn't a division of the House, there isn't a vote on 10-minute rule bills. Normally, they just allow them to pass through this initial stage, and then they die death because... There's never any time allocated for them to be debated. But on this occasion, uh, some Conservative backbenchers were determined to call a vote against it, uh, So, uh, which I welcomed, in, really, because it drew attention uh, to the debate and it actually uh, resulted in 52 people voting for reform, which I think is the highest ever number uh, publicly expressing a view in favour of reform in this place. So that, whilst it's deeply depressing that Parliament remains so far behind public opinion on this issue, I think, uh, nonetheless, there is a small encouragement that uh, the numbers of people supporting reform are increasing. Yeah, so that's 52 MPs who are prepared to say yes. But, but the Tories beyond this group abstained. Uh, Labour, in my view, shockingly abstained. There was, it was their official position to abstain on, on this big social reform. Uh, so they are, it appears, are happy to continue with a policy of prohibition, which gives billions of pounds to criminal networks, which criminalises young people, uh, and which fails to raise tax revenues for things like the NHS, for schools and for the police. So I think it's a pretty shameful position for Labour to be in, but I would absolutely applaud nine uh, Labour backbenchers, nine Conservative backbenchers and SNP members in large numbers who voted with us, uh, with the Lib Dems, for this reform. What's next? Can you? How often can you get this talked about can you you have another go well be rest assured I will keep going on this you know it's fascinating because when I first um, broke silence on this and made it clear that I supported the case for reform uh, I waited with some trepidation to see what the reaction would be whether you know I would get lots of criticism in my constituency whether the press would go for me Actually, nothing happened at all. Uh, I got one or two uh, negative letters from constituents, but I got loads of support. 
And since then, I've fought a general election where it's been an issue in North Norfolk, where in public meetings I've been challenged about it, particularly by Conservatives, thinking that they could trip me up over it. And actually, the last hustings just before the general election, I got a big round of applause when I gave the response. So, as I say, I think public opinion has shifted considerably. And when there are further opportunities in Parliament, I will seek to take them. Why is, um, I mean, is drugs a big part of your portfolio? You've been a, a health yeah. spokesperson. Yeah. For the, you know, why are drugs an issue that you're keen to uh, Well, I'm a liberal, first of all. Um, and for me, this is an iconic liberal policy. Uh, you know, when you think about John Stuart Mill said that the state has a right to intervene to stop people doing things when people do things that adversely affect other people. So if I hit you, the the state has a right to intervene to stop me and to prosecute me. But if I choose to do something myself, which has no effect on anyone else, the state should not be intervening. Now, John Stuart Mill was a great liberal thinker, and I endorse that approach. And so for me, it's a sort of point of principle here that we should not be intervening uh, particularly when there is also such hypocrisy that, you know, right, I, I made the point in my speech, right there in the nation's parliament, vast amounts of the most dangerous drug are consumed every day of the year, alcohol. We know it's in terms of harm to yourself and to others, particularly the violence that's associated with uh, alcohol, we know it's the most dangerous. So we endorse it here. We drink it in vast quantities. Not personally, I drink some, but not in vast quantities. Uh, we tax it and get tax revenues from it. And yet we're, we take a completely different approach to other people's drug of choice, which is cannabis. So let's end the hypocrisy and let's legislate on a public health basis to protect young people from harm. Um, was there a, a point where you know you sort of woke up to this realization, or have you always thought it? When you were bringing up your own children, did you talk openly about? Drugs we, we've and I've, about? I've talked about to both our sons about uh, drugs, legal and illegal, incidentally, and, and you know I've been most concerned about overconsumption of alcohol because I know that it ruins lives across our country. Um, and you know you go through a phase, particularly uh, with teenage boys and into their twenties, uh, where a lot of people are drinking very heavily and potentially at dangerous levels. So I particularly talked about that, but I talked also about other drugs. Um, and I think it has been a growing realization over many years. Um, but I think uh, it, I reached the conclusion, particularly watching what's been happening in America in Canada that actually we were way behind here and there was as an ex-health minister I just feel there is such a strong public health basis justification for regulating rather than leaving it in the hands of criminals. And why don't other MPs feel the same or feel able to publicly say the same? Is it, is it, do they think it's just a vote loser? I think there are different camps there will be people who just uh, will never be persuaded. Um, there are others who uh, are persuaded but haven't uh, uh, um, had the courage to speak out. Um, 
So we need to convince those that it's safe to speak out, that there isn't any disastrous consequence when you do. That's been my experience. But also there's a middle group of MPs where um, I think they are persuadable. And, uh, you know, it always seems to me when I, whenever I make the argument, as someone who is instinctively cautious, uh, quite hostile to the overconsumption of, of drugs, legal or illegal, um, uh, I think there is a case to be made for regulating in order to protect safety, to, to protect young people, uh, whilst also recognising the sort of liberal case for it. That's the thing that um, I, I've started reading a, a bit more about drug policy and things for, for this podcast. And so I I'm, see the book by David Nutt. Yes, yeah. I, I who was on a, who I got onto the Liberal Democrat expert panel that I set up. So he sat alongside Mike Barton, the current serving Chief Constable in Durham, uh, a former Chief Constable Tom Lloyd in Cambridgeshire, and a number of other scientists. And they, their conclusion was, uh, in the interests of public health, legalise and regulate. And now, and and so I'm, I, I've heard that a lot, and I, I and I'm, I can understand that wisdom now. When I say that to my wife, who's <laughs> slightly, perhaps more cautious, yeah. and, and definitely we've got three young children, yeah. um, she says, "But surely, if it's legal, suddenly, out of curiosity, more than anything, a whole load of people who are prevented from taking an illegal drug because it's illegal will suddenly have a go." Uh, and sure. and that might lead to more harm. So first of all, um, when the Lib Dems were in government as part of the coalition, uh, my former colleague Norman Baker was a Home Office Minister. He commissioned a study looking at countries around the world to see whether uh, is there a relationship between how tough your laws are on drugs and the levels of consumption. And they found no link uh, internationally. So that's quite an important thing. So. Um, that temptation that young people may feel to try something is here and now. Uh, and, and you can get cannabis anywhere. Prohibition hasn't worked. In any town, village or city across our country, you can get it. Um, and parents, as their children grow up, we may think we can stop them from using it. But it's a futile exercise because uh, people of their own free will will try things as young young people. And here's the thing, and this is the message for your wife and for others. If you're buying off the street, you have no idea what you're buying. So when your child, your oldest child is 17, say, and they buy some cannabis off the street, they might be buying the most potent strain, which may put them at risk of psychosis. So doesn't it actually make sense for us to seek to take the criminals out of the market? If you regulate it, you can control the potency. So what you're selling uh, is safer than what's available on the street. That seems to me to make an awful lot of sense. My, my children are um, 5, 10 and 13. This was recorded last year. So I am now six, and my big sister is 11. My big brother is 13 still, though. So my, uh, my son, my eldest, uh, is, is at school, and, you know, I've talked to him, and he says, oh, yeah, there's, there's already lads that vape, and, now, and then yeah. they start to smoke, and, oh, yeah, I think, I think they've, um, some of them talk about smoking weed. So 
it, it's around already. Um, I suppose in in five, ten, fifteen years' time, as all as those three get to adulthood, how how do you think we will have changed in this country with drug policy, drug law? Will there have been any reform? So, I, I, what I would like is for our drug laws uh, in those five, ten, fifteen years to be based far more on evidence rather than just fear. So. Uh, as someone who recognises there are potential dangers in alcohol uh, with smoking, remember the legal cigarette kills 79,000 people, kills 79,000 people in England alone. Uh, cannabis has no such risk at all. Um, uh, but I want our laws to be based on evidence and based on harm reduction. And so I think quite strict regulation uh, should be introduced. Colorado has had a looser approach, so um, having uh, less control over perhaps over potency, over edible products and so forth. I think start with a very strict regime, uh, tax the product so that you bring in tax revenues, but set the price at a level where you take criminals out of the market. If you set it too high, the criminal market will continue. Uh, but um, through designing a, uh, through a carefully designed uh, regulatory regime, getting the tax level right, we can get criminals out of it. We can stop handing billions of pounds every year to uh, organised crime. Organized, uh, the, the, the illegal market for cannabis and other drugs fuels enormous violence in our communities, you know. If, if, you're, if you're a dealer and you're serving a particular estate um, and someone tries to get in on your patch, what do you do? You don't go down to the high court and get an order to protect your market. You use extreme violence. That's what happens. And so street violence and intimidation is fueled by the illegal drugs trade. Uh, if you can uh, end that awful trade, particularly in our poorest communities, then uh, we can reduce levels of violence as well as reducing harm from buying potent strains on the street. I can see it's all making sense. It is. <laughs> um, as I was stood queuing in the co-op the other day and um, someone in front of me was buying cigarettes and they kind of pulled back the big shutter. Yep. And it was the first time for a while because they didn't have the brand yep. she wanted that I'd seen for a few minutes as I looked all the pictures the, yeah. the, of all the yeah. tumours and diseased yeah. lungs and things on there and um, so we're actively trying through those mechanisms to discourage people from yeah. smoking um, I'm guessing that if we legalised cannabis we'd be selling it for over 18s only similarly behind shutter doors that sort of thing absolutely um, do you think uh, the two kind of go against each other or can we be introducing new legal drugs to the market while we're also trying to tell people don't drink too much and don't smoke too much tobacco? No, I think what we're doing is introducing consistency, aren't we? So at the moment, we uh, the most dangerous drug of all, alcohol, is available everywhere, including in our parliament. And uh, um, there are some limits, so, f so for example, on advertising, but it is freely available. Uh, but it is regulated, um, and yet cannabis, a, a significantly less dangerous drug, but with risks, is criminal. So that uh, my constituent, who has a, a rapidly advancing Parkinson's disease, is at risk of prosecution for using cannabis, for goodness sake, 
when the bloke down the pub is getting completely pissed on several pints of beer, beating someone up on the street, uh, and that um, practice of drinking that large amount is totally legal. It's a it's total inconsistency. So let's introduce consistent regulation so that we have strict controls over the uh, the, the growing, uh, the uh, supply and the sale of all of these drugs and then you can seek to uh, apply public health messages which we've done rather successfully with tobacco whilst it's been a legal product uh, and we can apply those same messages to cannabis and indeed to alcohol. When I listened recently to a talk that David Nutt, Professor David Nutt uh, gave, he, um, he wasn't very positive about, about Parliament and uh, <laughs> Obviously, his experience uh, wasn't great, um, but he suggested that um, MPs are somehow in the pocket of the big drinks companies. That there's a sort of uh, do, do they lobby? Do you think drinks companies actively oh, lobby to, to stop cannabis becoming legal because it would oh. be a rival to them? No, they, they lo- the drinks companies lobby very heavily on tax. Um, okay. So the whiskey companies, for example, and Scottish MPs in particular, big lobby to keep tax levels down. I've never come across any drinks company lobbying me to stop cannabis being legalised. That that hasn't happened. And I don't think it does happen, to be honest. Um, I think the people, but, but it's, it's a fair point that the people who would potentially lose out uh, if cannabis was legalised is potentially the drinks industry because there's a sort of displacement uh, possibility but also the criminals. Uh, the last thing that the criminals who are selling drugs and using extreme violence in particularly in poor communities, the last thing they want is a legal market because it takes them out of business. And, and do you think it would? Well it all depends on whether you how you set the price. If you set the price right so that Buying it legally and safely um, is uh, a, a lower cost or competitive with buying at enormous risk something off the street. You have no idea what you're getting. Then people will opt for the safe option, uh, and you know there's a lot of evidence that that's the case. Yeah, I've heard it argued as well that it would potentially getting drugs then would just become a boring, mundane thing like buying paracetamol. It would have yeah. less of the attractiveness and... Yeah, and uh, so, so I was in Montreal recently uh, speaking at a mental health conference and we were one block away from the public dispensary and this was a very sort of plain uh, building where the state was uh, dispensing cannabis products in brown paper bags, plain bags, of course, you wouldn't have any advertising or promotion in a legal regulated market. And there was a long queue, uh, probably 50 to 100 yards long, of people just patiently waiting to buy their cannabis. Of all ages, no doubt many people who are buying it for the relief of pain. Um, and it was the most wonderful uh, sort of sight, uh, sort of clear demonstration of uh, of the effect of this reform that suddenly people were able to come out of the shadows and queue up for the state dispensary. Um, my podcast is about talking to, to children and young people to, to try and keep them safer. 
Um, am I right in thinking that in schools we don't have to, teachers don't have to talk about drugs? Is there, is there any kind of legal requirement? No, I don't think there is a legal requirement. I mean, I, I, I would want, through PHSE uh, classes, um, there to be, and it is coming, compulsory sex, edu- sex and relationship education, but also I think we should be teaching about mental health uh, so that you start to understand our mental health. We all have mental health. Some suffer deteriorated mental health, uh, but we need to understand how our physical and our mental health works. Uh, But also we should be talking about the risks of drugs. And of course, one of the benefits of a legal regulated market is that you would be bringing in probably something close to a billion pounds a year in tax revenues. And you could use some of that to Uh, fund the availability of public health messages and teaching through schools and other public places. How did you talk to your boys? How how did you... Well, I I made it quite clear that... You see, I'm I'm someone who... uh, I'm probably one of the leading advocates for reform, but I'm not someone who's used cannabis. I never have. I think I once took it accidentally. Right. uh, (laughs) at At a dinner party many, many years ago, and I didn't even realise I was taking it, it had no effect on me. And it was one puff. So that's, and I can't even say I didn't inhale like Bill Clinton. Yeah. Uh, But that's the limit of it, because I've never been interested. Um, Although I have smoked, which I know puts me at risk of dying from it, I've stopped. And I drink alcohol, modestly, but I drink alcohol. Uh, And so... My case for it is not based on sort of personal pleading. Um, And my message as a parent to our sons has always been about the risks of substances, legal or illegal. I think it's much more sensible to focus on what harm could this do to you rather than whether it happens to be legal or illegal. Because legal things like alcohol and smoking cause massive damage and far more damage than cannabis. Yeah, I found it quite interesting. It sort of takes a little while to get your head around thinking about the risk comparisons. David Nutt talks a lot about, you know, he was famously uh, sort of sacked for comparing the risks of ecstasy and horse riding. Uh, And, um, you know, we... If, if one of our children wanted to go travelling and see the world and said they were going to do a bungee jump, you you might be nervous, but yeah. you, you wouldn't sort of, they wouldn't criminalise them for yeah, it, would you? Exactly. So, so exactly. it's a funny um, a funny thing to to try and work out how to talk about risk without feeling that if you talk about um, cannabis not having so much risk, you suddenly fear that you're painted as a drug endorsing hippie. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's just, we the, because it has. This illegal status, it, it assumes a sort of great fear amongst people um, that alcohol doesn't. You know, um, and families very often allow their children to drink bottles of beer, at, you know, from 15 or mm. whatever. Um, but they're taking an enormous risk with their children with alcohol uh, if they go down that route because. You know, the it's it, it is in effect a poison if it's taken in substantial quantities, and I mean David Nutt is very clear on the risks of alcohol. So I just think you know I say this as chair of the Science and Technology Select Committee 
let's apply evidence rather than base our judgments on fear. Um, I'm in the media. I work as a journalist normally for the BBC. Uh, so a lot, lots of our thoughts about drugs, I think, are coloured by high-profile news stories, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, very um, true. And, uh, I'm, but I'm not sure how, how that gradually shifts and how we gradually start reporting things in a more honest way. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been some good things the, the BBC has done. Uh, I mean, Professor Green uh, did a documentary, yeah, I watched um, which I thought was really powerful. And it was great because he went and talked to scientists. Um, and that got out into the public domain. I mean, that is what public service broadcasting is about, because it revealed to people the evidence uh, uh, of all of this. Um, and... Of course, news will always report on sort of horror stories, um, but I've I've been having a bit of an exchange on Twitter with someone. Who, I'm not, not sure whether he's the head of the Centre for Social Justice or just one of the leading people in it, but he was very critical of my debate in Parliament, and he suggests there are all sorts of risks attached to the legalisation of cannabis, but they never talk about the risks that we have here and now from a criminal market. And every young, every young teenager who is experiencing psychosis now, because perhaps because they've taken cannabis or very strong potent strains, uh, that's happened with a criminal market, for goodness sake. It's not happened under what I advocate, which is regulating the potency so that you reduce the risk. Uh, and so I think people get very co confused in their arguments uh, as to, you know, when they argue against legalisation, they're arguing because of, a f because of anxiety about what is happening here and now. But what is happening here and now is because we have a criminal market which does not protect children and young people. The whole, you know, the whole basis that the Canadians went out and made the case was, let's, for goodness sake, start protecting teenagers and young people from harm. One final question about the, the Centre for Social Justice. I think I saw that um, they did a report, didn't they? Uh, it was reported in The Telegraph, where they <laughs> said um, that they'd interviewed uh, young people. Would they, if it became legal, try? Yes, I saw that. And so yeah. then there's a million people say, yeah, we'll give it a try if it yeah. becomes legal. And, and then they use the statistic that 10% um, of people who use drugs have a problem with them. So then they say 100,000 new addicts. Yeah, uh, it's completely false. Is that all a distortion? Of it's a total distortion. I mean, because asking people what they might do uh, in a different scenario is just speculation, ultimately. Let's, let's look at what has actually happened in the many American states now uh, which have legalised cannabis. Most of them, incidentally, have started by legalising cannabis for medicinal use, not in the way we've done it in this country, which is which will help a tiny, minuscule number of people, but doing it in a way that, you know, if you've got a whole range of conditions, you can get access to cannabis, full stop. Uh, so California, for example, has done that. Uh, but California has now voted, the whole population of California, in a referendum, the dreaded referendum, <laughs> uh, has voted to legalise cannabis. And the fascinating thing, and I think one of the strongest uh, sort of um, indications uh, that uh, the world doesn't cave in when you legalise, is that several American states have now legalised cannabis. 
and more keep voting to do the same. So they're not looking at Colorado and California and Oregon and thinking, oh my God, look what's happened. It's been a total disaster. They're thinking, yeah, that's a bit more rational than what we do here. Let's vote to do the same thing. Thank you ever so much for your time. Pleasure. Very interesting. <laughs> so that was Norman Lamb in his office in Portcullis House, I think it is, on the banks of the Thames on a very cold December day six months ago. Uh, and now it's a damp June day and I'm going to ring him back and find out what he thinks because of all these Tory politicians and their drug revelations this week. Hello, uh, it's Norman here. Sorry I can't take your call. Do leave a message after the tone. Thanks a lot. OK, try again. Hello, Norman. Hello, Norman. It's uh, Bob Diggles from the Dad Does Drugs podcast. Oh, hello. I'm just uh, finishing a, uh, a meeting. Ah, that was awkward. I was a bit early for the interview. Uh, let's try again. Hello. Hello, Norman. Uh, thank you, and sorry for interrupting the earlier meeting. Right. Yeah, th- thanks for doing it. I just wanted to try and catch you again because I listened back to our conversation which we recorded when we met in December and Brexit negotiations yeah. were in turmoil and now here we are six months on. And, uh, yeah, no more- change. <laughs> um, but I, I just wondered what you thought uh, in light of all these um, Tory drug revelations. I'm looking at the front page of a of The Guardian today with a headline saying, let's be honest, drugs can be wonderful from one of their columnists with the actual news story being environment minister tries to revive campaign after cocaine revelations so suddenly uh, drugs are being talked about is is that a good thing do you think well i think it's a very good thing this uh, sort of outburst of honesty from conservative cabinet ministers uh, is a wonder to behold these expressions of deep regret are utterly synthetic but um, it, it, it just exposes an extraordinary hypocrisy amongst this group of people who continue to advocate for, let's face it, a draconian approach to drug use for those who get caught, which involves giving people a criminal uh, record, whilst um, they all themselves have used drugs at at some stage in the past or indeed for all we know at present and uh, we also know that your chances of getting caught prosecuted uh, and ending up with a criminal record your chance of getting involved in the extreme violence that's associated with the illegal drugs trade is all much higher if you live in a poor, disadvantaged community, particularly if you're from an ethnic minority. Mm. Uh, and so I find it deeply distasteful, these uh, very privileged Conservative cabinet ministers coming out with their revelations, but apparently completely unable to see the hypocrisy and to see the need for a different approach for reform. Um, so I think with we're exposing a hypocrisy, but uh, we now need to move the debate on and actually uh, address the need to reform uh, rather than continue to listen to their crocodile tears. Yeah, I think it's exposed a couple of things, that the sort of misreporting and misrepresenting of drug harms when you see how varied the drug harms are so you know drugs is doesn't work as a catch-all phrase uh, when i listened to gove 
talking to Andrew Marr and 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 talking about the harm. You know, there's no harm really. I, you know, there, there is a small amount, but the, the the harm of a middle class person having a line of coke at a dinner party is uh, is not in any way is not in the same universe as the harm of a crack cocaine user in an estate in this country and and but the, but he's relate you know conflating the two which i just thought was really unhelpful and because it's then reported in that way and i think the image of the harm of drugs is is really misrepresented and also the idea that a cannabis lassie while you're backpacking or smoking some weed at uni is something to have deep regret over i mean it's i i feel like it's the same sort of thing that you would look back in your past and think oh I shouldn't have spent all that money on that expensive round of cocktails when I was on holiday or I wish I hadn't smoked that cigar at that wedding because it made me feel a bit queasy but no one looks back with deep and lasting regret unless their job's suddenly on the line so it just it just all felt yeah very insincere and 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 really unhelpful insincere and the the deep and lasting regret is being caught not not um Mm. what they've done and the there is it's it's sort of hypocrisy laced with ignorance i think um we shouldn't incidentally forget about the uh, harm that is caused with the illegal drugs trade that ends up with the middle class person taking the line of cocaine at the dinner party because along that line from the production um there is a lot of extreme violence uh, which results uh, uh, from the illegality of this trade um, because no one through the whole supply chain can use the high court to enforce their territorial rights so far as their uh, supply is concerned they use extreme violence Mm. that's what happens Uh, and it's always disadvantaged people who suffer the consequences of that so there is a harm that's attached to the middle-class use of cocaine, but it's associated with the illegality of the system rather than anything else. Yes, OK, that's a good point. Um, Not a harm to the individual who takes it, No, necessarily. Do you think this is going to be a tipping point for you know, a, a genuine hope of a, of a drug reform conversation? Uh, well, uh, it... it there is an inevitability that this is when, not if. Um, it will happen. Uh, the public is ahead of the politicians on this. Uh, I should incidentally also say that the polling uh, of attitudes, public attitudes, shows now majority support for uh, legalisation of cannabis uh, for recreational and for medicinal use. The public is not there with regard to legalisation of any other drug. Uh, we, we, we should be honest about that. I think the public has moved a long way in terms of the inappropriateness of taking someone through the criminal justice system. But I think we've got to... It, it, those, those people who believe in reform have got to take an incremental evidence-based approach. So let's start with where... There's now evidence of the effectiveness of a a regulatory approach. Uh, And let's get on with reforming the law on cannabis. Mm. Uh, And and then let's, uh, once we've addressed that, let's then have a proper discussion about the appropriate 
response to other drugs. I've already been clear, as my party has, that all drugs should be decriminalised. Uh, we should at least start with that so that we don't take... Some, you know, the Michael Gove of this world, he, he uh, rejoiced in saying it was a criminal offence and I deeply regret it. Well, he shouldn't have been taken through uh, the courts, just as no one should, for the use of a substance. But I think we've got to be very careful about how we take the public with us on this journey. And let's start with where the case is clear and shown in other countries by legalising and regulating cannabis. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you for your time. That's great. Um, Pleasure. Um, and uh, thanks for squeezing it in amongst all your other busyness. Um, Pleasure. Lovely. Thank you. All right. All the best. Good to speak to you. Thank you. Bye. 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 All right. Uh, recording. Cool. Politics and drugs. Yeah, I found that one interesting. Um, I found that at the beginning quite good when you went through all the interviews and did that. <laughs> I like that bit with the music and that. Yeah, it's been quite a week for politicians. Yeah. I don't know what started it. Why? I think Michael Gove got stitched up, basically. Hmm. I don't know whether it's Boris Johnson's people that tipped off the book writer but someone's written a book about i think about michael gove in which they obviously know that he took cocaine so he's then had to admit it all maybe then journalists just started asking politicians to their face have you ever done drugs and they couldn't really bare face lie if they if they had so one after another they've all confessed um, yeah which is quite uh funny i do think it's good that they're having honest conversations whether it leads anywhere, though, I suppose is the, the next thing. Yeah. Did it feel to you like there was, like it was hypocritical, given all the things that we've talked about and listened to? Which part do you mean? Well, the, the fact that they justify our drug laws on the basis that drugs cause terrible harm and... and it, yeah, yeah, they've got like, great jobs and have done drugs in the past. Yeah, yes. And when I chatted to the policeman... Scott McKechnie, a few weeks back, he said, we don't want to arrest children. So I think I feel like everyone is sort of accepting and understanding that young people, not children, but, you know, older teenagers moving into early adulthood make some daft decisions. Yeah. And sometimes that might be to do with drugs. But for most people, it's not life-threatening and it's not life-ruining Definitely not. It, yeah, it was just a a bit of a silly mistake. And then to have the politicians treating it like it's that they murdered someone when they were yeah. younger. <laughs> you know, I just don't think they're really filled with regret. This seems a bit a bit yeah. a bit made up for the cameras almost. Obviously. But I'll be interested to see what, what comes of it all. And Norman Lamb was interested in saying that he doesn't think the public is ready to legalise anything other than cannabis yet. Yeah, I get that. I think I agree with him. I think it would be... Yeah, people just panic. Oh, yeah, I think you're right, yeah. The vote just wouldn't go through. Like, they wouldn't be able to get that legalised, I don't think. No, I think people would would worry that if you legalise it, it's a green light to, to take lots of... Things yeah. which can be quite dangerous, cocaine and ecstasy. Compared to, um, compared to cannabis, they, those are actually dangerous drugs. You, you can take one thing and die, yes, yeah, or, or they, certainly they get hospitalised. Yeah, they are dangerous. Yeah. Whereas cannabis really isn't. 
It does seem that way, doesn't it? And and so many other countries have already legalised it. Yeah. I heard an interview with a guy called Peter Hitchens, who is a journalist who writes for the Mail on Sunday mainly, I think, uh, and maybe the Daily Mail as well. And he's very anti any drugs and gets very grumpy about it. And it, I, I listened to him on Sunday, he was on Radio 4, uh, talking about it, and he was saying how legalisation in, in places like Canada and Colorado hasn't made anything any better. And, you know, they've made mistakes because the legal manufacture now of, of marijuana cigarettes, they're making them, they're still breeding and growing very strong strains of marijuana. And this is, you know, really strong skunk sort of stuff yeah. that, so it shows that even, even in, even if you legalise it, still, it's still very harmful stuff. And, and that might be true that these countries have made mistakes because they definitely have other guests that we've spoken to have said that. Yeah. But I don't think that's any reason not to do it. You just learn from their mistakes. Yeah, you do it right. And do it differently in this country, yeah. And, and it's interesting that Norman Lamb says, and I think we said it recently, you know, at least 59% of the of the country now thinks we should do something about... Means let's put it for a referendum, cannabis. we should we, be legalised. Yes, uh, yeah, cannabis would, I think. And it just seems to make sense. I think those those children that have got epilepsy that have no symptoms when they take cannabis oil, that's been a real tipping point, I think, for people's yeah. view on it. They've seen those mums at airports trying to get cannabis oil into the UK and being turned away, and and everyone's gone, why? That's just unfair and, and, and cruel and... Uh, yeah, and they just realised that smoking cannabis really, like you said, isn't that harmful. And it'd be interesting. It's a funny kind of unintended consequence of um, a Tory leadership squabble. It's quite interesting if um, if an unintended consequence of that is ending up being a conversation about drug law reform. Yeah, do you know Boris Johnson's um, opinion on that? Is because he's probably going to be the next prime minister. Well, I don't know what his personal opinion is. His like opinion. Of he's sort of he's admitted to having taken cannabis, and he's sort of bluffed and blustered his way through, probably possibly taking cocaine, but made all those jokes about sneezing and icing sugar and what have you. But let's assume that he has done, he has taken both of those substances because I think that's probably relatively likely. So his personal opinion might be one of reform, but it's whether he's prepared to be brave and get his party to to vote on it i suspect not yeah but he's a funny one because i think he's sort of quite um eccentric you know and and might just make a brave choice and they'll all be led by public opinion that guy harry shapiro that i interviewed recently said it it, it, it needs to get to a, a point where for the government they can't Public opinion is tipped so far that the government can't make any other decision, can't yeah. not do it. Yeah, I wonder what his opinion will be, and I wonder if he'll even win because this thing, this program I was listening to on Radio Four, where they were talking about things in the news, and obviously Gove's cocaine thing was in the news, but also just the general leadership battle was in the news. They were saying that um, it's never normally the the favourite that wins a Conservative Party leadership battle. Over the last 40 years, it's never been the favourite, so... I think it's going to go, then. Oh, I don't know. Do you think he can come back from 
Denial it's that we coping. know any other ones names apart from Govan. Yeah, I think that's a big problem for them, isn't it? That no one really has heard of them. Half of them, uh, they're just. Well, we go to the education one. Like, he, he did used to be the education. But the teachers didn't like. Yeah, he's not very likable. It seems as a you know when you see him, he doesn't have that warmth and uh, appeal. No, whereas Boris has a bit of that. He's a bit of charisma, hasn't he? Definitely, yeah. So we'll see. I don't know what, like the like the weird like appeal that all Trump did, where it's like he's so eccentric and charismatic that you kind of just like want to see what happens if he does one. <laughs> yeah, yes. If I have perhaps understood a bit more about what might happen with Brexit if it all goes wrong, then I might be more terrified. At the moment, I've just no idea what's going to happen. So, not being a, a an expert economist or business person, I. I not quite sure what it's going to mean, but yeah. it doesn't seem like anyone thinks it's going to be good anyway, apart from Nigel Farage. <laughs> I did an interview today with BBC Five Live and, yeah. and got cut out of the, of the piece. <laughs> uh, How come? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to speak to the journalist tomorrow. I understand that that sort of thing happens all the time. Big shows on, on big... TV stations and radio stations book guests and then have to drop them at the last minute all the time because just something better comes up, you know, something yeah. bigger and better. So uh, I was I was interviewed and, and recorded for a piece that was going to be used talking about um, harm reduction. Were you just not? And then I just wasn't in the piece. When I listened back to the piece later, I just wasn't in it. So maybe they just didn't think I fitted in it. So. Uh, oh. But I'm doing an interview on BBC Scotland this week. And that's live, so they can't cut me out of that. <laughs> <laughs> Just have through the interview and it stops. Yeah, so that, that'll be interesting. That's with a woman called Kay Adams, who is quite a well-known TV and radio figure in, in Scotland and most of the rest of the UK. So that'd be, that'd be quite interesting to talk to her. Mm-hmm. And then next week, it might be our last podcast for a little while because it's my last recorded interview so I thought then we might have a summer break and possibly do a few more in the yeah like a season two season two in September but um uh, next week is a professor called Sue Price and she is really interesting because she knows a lot about the politics of the drug trade yeah coming from South America over to Europe and also her son ended up being a heroin addict and she had to buy him heroin I think for a while oh because, from a dealer yeah because she didn't want him getting in trouble and stealing to make the money to get the heroin so she had the money so she bought the heroin for him I think that was her logic but yeah quite a decision to make yeah but she's really interesting and funny so I think That'll be a good one. And then, we, then we'll have our summer recess. Uh-huh. Cool. Um, well, thanks for talking. Uh-huh.